just started a new series in the book of James. It's called The Grind of the Grace. Now, I must just admit that I wanted to make sure I, I knew what we meant by, in particular, the word grind. So I did check out the Urban Dictionary just to make sure I was on the right page. And uh, I understood that grind means to be working hard, to be pushing hard, hustling hard. All right, but I'm going to extend it a little bit beyond what the Urban Dictionary gave me to include like the struggle of life, uh, the hardships, the suffering that we go through as well. And so, so grind means all of those things uh, as we look at the, the book of James. Um, we'll see in James that uh, the grind of the grace means that, yes, we're saved by grace through faith, but if that is a real thing that has happened in us, it's going to lead to fruit, it's going to lead to hard work, it's going to lead to obedience, and it's going to be a grind. Uh, we'll also see how, as much as God in His grace has given us so much, uh, so much blessing that we can enjoy, nevertheless, we are not going to be exempt as Christians from the grind of life. Things are going to be tough. We live in a broken world, and there's going to be suffering. And so, and yet even in that suffering, there's going to be grace for us. So in many ways, we're going to see the grind of the grace come out throughout this book of James. Uh, last week, Ane did a, a good job of just introing us to the series and to the book of James. Um, we saw how uh, some of the major themes were introduced. We also looked at James as the author, the person who wrote this book. We saw how he was uh, actually a blood brother, a half-brother of Jesus himself. Um, and we were amazed at how it is that, uh, that James, someone who is actually a sibling of Jesus, would grow up, despite all kinds of sibling rivalry that we know exists, to actually believe that Jesus is God, all right, and to call him Lord. Um, and by the time James wrote this book, or this letter, uh, he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, and he writes it with fatherly care, uh, as he's intimately acquainted with what people are going through uh, in the church in Jerusalem at the time. Um, today, we'll see James jump straight in to one of the major themes of the book, uh, which I'm going to call Authentic Faith. Right, authentic faith. We've talked about sort of all the fakes that we experience in life. Uh, James is, cares a lot about faith being authentic. Do we have the real thing? Um, but he also gets very practical, jumping right into their situation, the hardship and the things that the people were going through that he's writing to, um, the suffering and the trials and the grind of life. And so I wasn't sure whether the kind of big point of today's passage was about the hardship and the suffering or whether it was about authentic faith. Um, certainly the, the, the two ideas kind of interact with each other the whole way through. Uh, we'll see how uh, the trials that we go through actually serve to enhance our faith and to grow our faith. And we'll also see how our faith helps us in the trials. Um, so in the end, I, I'm going to sit on the fence and I'm going to call today's message, uh, uh, it's going to be authentic faith and the grind. All right, authentic faith and the grind. A little bit of a fence set, but I think we'll see that they're basically interacting the whole way. Okay, so we're going to read today's passage. I'm going to repeat verse 1, which we looked at last week, because uh, it's very short, and then we'll read through from James chapter 1, verse 1, through to verse 12. So turn with me, if, if you have a Bible with you, or an electronic version of a Bible, it'll also be up behind me. So let's read together from, from the book of James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are with us this morning by your spirit to speak to us through your word. And Lord, I pray that each of us would be open to hear what you have to say, Lord, that you would encourage us deeply, Father, that you would work in our hearts as well as in our, in our minds as we understand your word, that you would change us in ways that are lasting, Lord Jesus, that you would uh, breathe faith into our hearts today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, as I mentioned, James jumps straight into being very, very practical. He gets straight into business. It's quite different from some of the letters of, say, Paul. Uh, Paul writes letters like Romans and Ephesians and Corinthians, many of which we've looked at and rooted in the last few years. And often what Paul will do is he'll start to unpack a whole lot of theology. Like he'll spend chapters explaining what God has done, who God is, what he's done for us in Christ. And then at some point, maybe halfway through the book, uh, he'll he'll say something like, therefore, in view of God's mercy, let us do X, Y, and Z. Let us offer our bodies as sacrifices, etc., etc. So he he really builds up all the reason and motivation for why we should live in certain ways, and then he gets practical. Whereas James jumps straight in here, he gets straight into the mess, uh, straight into where people are at and how they should how they should live in the midst of it. Um, he jumps straight into where they're at. They're going through a rough time. A lot of people are struggling in different ways. We saw in verse 1 that they were dispersed or scattered, um, which was as a result of being persecuted at the time. Um, we see, as we read throughout the book of James, that some people are in material poverty. They are poor. Um, others are sick. Others are struggling with sin. Uh, and as James puts it here, people are struggling with various kinds of trials. Uh, it was a struggle that was very real. All right. Now, one thing we often do when, especially introducing a new book at Rooted, is we try and show how their situation was not all that different from ours. All right. How it is still relevant for us today. But in in this case, I'm I'm acutely aware that many of us are really struggling in different ways. I think OG spoke about it. Um, I know from my experience, and I know based on just conversations I've been having with a lot of of you guys. Um, that the battle is really intense right now. I think maybe it always in life, maybe it's one realizes just how much of a battle people are going through as, 
as you, as you, as you get, sort of learn more about it, but I know people are struggling. I know that some of you have, have suffered losses recently. Um, and some, some of you I know have suffered maybe three or four losses, like in the last less than a year. Um, and it feels like your family's targeted or something. Um, many of you are sick. Some of you are, are sick in ways that have been going on for long. Um, and it's not just going away. Um, some people have had recent crises in their, in their families with, with people in hospital and so on. Uh, some of us are battling depression on a daily basis. Um, some of you guys have been unemployed for a while and it's been a long time and it's discouraging. Um, others are, are lonely. Some of us are really struggling in our marriages right now. Uh, some of us are becoming discouraged in our fight against specific sins. We're, we're struggling with the same thing over and over, and it's getting really discouraging. Some of us, to be honest, are even tempted to give up on our faith. Um, it sounds hectic, but, but I think those are the kinds of thoughts that, that sometimes go through our minds. And sometimes it's very much a private matter. For some of us, uh, if, if our friends or if our family or even perhaps our spouse could actually hear some of the prayers we pray, some of the things we cry out, they might be actually shocked to realize just how hectic it is. Um, and, I, and I say that not to be overly dramatic, but as I say, it's based on my own struggles, my own thoughts, which I have, as well as on many conversations I've been having with folks recently. And I'm also saying it because because I want us all to know that God knows. All right? God actually knows the full extent to which we're struggling. He knows our thoughts. He knows just how hectic it is. Um, and I believe he has a message of encouragement for us in the book of James and in today's passage. And I really hope and pray that he's going to do something miraculous in our hearts, that we really will be encouraged by some of what we have to read today. I also want to say that I'm, I'm definitely not going to share with you all, all the sort of encouragement and tips for how to go through struggles based on kind of my experience of having made it through and figured out what works. I'm right in the midst of it, but, but I believe God's word calls us to obedience and to faith um, and to hear what he has to say to us even before we've seen things change in our own lives. Okay, so we're going to jump straight in. We're going to see what, what James says. And the first thing he, he says to us in verse 2 is he says, count it all joy, or consider it joy, when we face trials of various kinds. Now, you might be familiar with this verse, and so it sounds like a nice, familiar, well-known Bible verse, and maybe you didn't blink as you read it. But actually, our response to that count it all joy thing should be kind of, wait, like what? Like, do you really think it can be a joy when we've just suffered a loss of someone in our close family? Can I count it joy when I'm going through emotional or physical pain on a daily basis? How is that really joy? When I'm going through this thing, I'm going through whatever it is in your particular case. Now, I don't think James is giving us a cheap line. It's not, it's not like a don't worry, be happy, or look on the bright side of life, or the glass is half full type, type line. He's not being trite here. Um, he's actually making uh, a point, which he's going to explain in, in the text, that uh, actually, somehow, these trials are good for our faith. Okay, They're good for our faith. So to see his argument, let's look at verses 2 to 4 together. I'll read it one more time. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
So we see here that the trials actually serve a very important purpose. They are for two things in particular here, for the testing of our faith and to improve our faith. For the testing of our faith and to improve our faith. But even that, to say trials are good for our faith, it's still easier to say than it is to really believe. And so I think for us to try and understand how it is that trials and our faith interact, we need to take a step back and just say, what is this thing called faith? What is faith? It's one of those words we use a lot in church, but what is it really? And fortunately, the Bible itself gives us a definition in the book of Hebrews. So let's look at that uh, together. Hebrews chapter 11, which is all about faith, uh, defines faith in this way. It says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So this means that faith sees the bigger picture. It sees the eternal perspective. Um, it, in our situations, often we see just what's right in front of us, and it doesn't look hopeful. But faith sees another story. It sees uh, the chess game 10, 20, 30 moves down the line. All right. Um, faith uh, sees beyond our physical reality, which may not offer hope. I mean, if you, some people may have a terminal disease, and, it, and there's no real hope of like getting better in this life. But faith sees another reason for hope. It sees another perspective in that. Faith is anchored in the invisible truths of who God is and what He has promised. And this kind of assurance and this kind of conviction that faith is, these are internal things, intangible realities in our heart, which means that nobody can know for sure whether my faith is authentic. You don't really know what's going on in my heart. And actually, I think our hearts are so deceptive that sometimes we may not know ourselves for sure that we have the real thing. Sometimes we actually need to know for ourselves, do we have authentic faith? And that's why we need our faith to be tested. It's actually for ourselves. It's not to prove it to anyone else. We need to prove it to ourselves that our faith is real. As some of you discussed in Question of the Day, uh, we live in a world with a lot of fake stuff. All right, fake news is coming out all the time these days. I've recently been guilty of passing on fake news too quickly and had to take it back. Um, fake clothes, photoshopped images, very marked products, Sam Samsung, <laughs> Samsung phones, the list goes on, all right? Um, and so when, when it comes to our faith, we've got to know that we have the real thing, okay? Because one day, we're going to go through the biggest test, the biggest trial, and on that day, we really need to know that we have authentic faith. And I'm talking ultimately of, of death. It's, it's a trial that's waiting for all of us. Um, and if it's going to be a long, drawn-out process, it's going to be a really difficult time where we, where we stare death in the face. And we're going to really need to know for sure that we have authentic faith. And once we die, are we going to be amongst those who are found to have truly believed in Jesus? Or will we be amongst those who, who Jesus talks about who will say things like, Lord, Lord, like, I did miracles in your name. Um, I went to church, and, and I'm paraphrasing here. I even invited my friends to church. Um, I was in the band. I did all sorts of things. But, but we know that from what Jesus said that, that there are going to be some people like that, and Jesus' response will be, but I actually didn't know you. So we really need to know on that day that we have the real thing. And why this is, is because actually there's all sorts of motives for why we come to church. If we're honest with ourselves, we come for a whole lot of reasons. Um, it could be to just to make friends and enjoy fellowship. Not all the reasons are in themselves bad reasons, but let's be honest, there's a whole lot of reasons. It could be to, to meet a special someone. 
Um, it could be to feel accepted or to feel like approved by people. It could be to make ourselves feel good, like we're good people, we're re- regular church-going people. Maybe it's we're coming so that our kids can get well-raised. Okay, there are many reasons why we come to church. And, and just by being here, it's not clear to anyone or to ourselves that we really have authentic faith. Coming to church in itself is not going to strip us bare and, and expose the reality of whether we really have faith that will last. Um, at the end of the day, the only thing that's going to do that is the really fiery trials of life. That's going to strip us bare and prove whether our hope and our trust is ultimately in Christ and Him alone. <clears throat> Many of us know people who have given up on their faith when, it, when the trial got too hectic. And, and typically speaking, um, when, when the trials happen to us, it's a different story, right? So anyone who becomes a Christian knows about the suffering in the world. We all know about some of the horrendous things that happen to people in the world. But when it happens to us, it's suddenly a different story. It's suddenly now, is God real? Is God really good? Does God love me? And usually people go either one of two ways. They either give, give up on the whole thing, or they actually come through stronger with a faith that is improved because we've been forced to rely on God, forced to trust Him, broken in our own strength, but able and forced to trust in Jesus alone. And so we see that trials are actually good for our faith because they prove our faith to be authentic. But next we'll see that trials improve our faith. They actually improve our faith. The students in the room, and there are quite a few students here, they will know that testing is a really important part of learning. Who would study all night if we didn't have a high-stakes exam the next day? We probably wouldn't. Testing often is what actually forces us to learn. I don't know, maybe some of you are the people who sort of get the course outline at the start of the semester and like do all your pre-reading and stuff. But actually, exams are really what force us to learn. And I think it's the same in life, that it's only when we really put to the test, when we really go through the trials, that we're actually forced to learn things in an experiential way. Um, where we learn about God's faithfulness, we actually are forced to trust Him, we're forced to step out in faith. Um, stuff that OG was saying earlier, being forced to step out of faith, even though you don't want to, but ultimately that's where a lot of the learning happens. I'd also go as far as to say that it's when we're really broken that God does a lot of work in us. And so let me just put in an additional plug for the Lechotla this Wednesday, as it was mentioned. We're having a Lechotla on the topic of brokenness. Now, I don't, I don't know exactly the kind of angle that will be taken on the night, but I suspect that some of the stuff we'll hear is how God can really use brokenness to work in us and to work through us in really powerful ways. Um, and if we think about it, even coming to Christ in the first place is something that can only really happen if we are broken to a degree. We have to know that we in ourselves are dead, are dead in sin, that we can do nothing to save ourselves or make us right with God, and therefore we are, re- we are ready to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. So actually we have to be broken um, to accept Christ, and it's the same in our journey towards spiritual maturity, that if we're going to become mature and complete, we're also going to have to go through seasons of brokenness, learning not to trust in our own strength, learning that we're not good enough in our own righteousness. Um, and so we're on a journey to spiritual maturity, and that's also something we saw in these verses that James is saying. The trials are taking us on a journey towards spiritual maturity. Uh, he, he wrote that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
And I think we can be encouraged simply by this fact that we know in whatever we're going through, God is at work. He's actually doing something. It's not pointless and meaningless suffering. I'm not saying that we're going to be able to sort of connect all the dots and be like, okay, this is happening so that that could happen. Sometimes we, we try and sort of overinterpret the, the struggles in our life. And I think that there's going to be many struggles where we'll live our whole lives and look back and still not understand why that thing happened. I think that's just the reality, uh, this side of, of, of eternity. Um, but there is still encouragement in knowing that even when we don't understand sort of exactly why things happen, we know God is at work. He's using those trials to strengthen us, to make us more like Him. And I think there's encouragement just in knowing that. Okay, so if we can summarize uh, the first section of our passage uh, by saying that God uses trials to prove and improve our faith. God uses trials to prove and improve our faith. But when we're in the middle of it all, it's going to be difficult. We're going to be confused and frustrated. And so that leads us to James's next point, which is that God gives us wisdom and helps us in our suffering. God gives us wisdom and helps us in our suffering. Have a look at verses 5 to 8 with me. Let's read that one more time. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let me just tell you how I read this. As I read this little section, I'm initially a little bit unsettled and shaken. For me, I naturally focus on the part about like not doubting, otherwise you'll get nothing from God. And I worry because I often do doubt. Like I don't think I always pray with the sort of like 100% faith levels that like the prayer is as good as answered. I don't always do that. So it is a bit worrying for me. And, and there's a sense in which I think that's right. I think we should be challenged about whether we truly expect God to hear our prayers and answer our prayers when we pray. But I've become convinced that the main thrust of this section is really about encouragement and comfort to us that God is with us and God is ready to give. He's ready to give wisdom. He's ready to answer prayers. That's what the focus of this, uh, this little section is about. James doesn't reprimand us for not having wisdom. He says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask. Um, so, so it's not, so there's sympathy. It's okay to, to lack wisdom and God is with us and he's ready to give. Uh, generously. It's interesting also here that, uh, that he doesn't write, uh, that God will give generously. He writes, God who gives generously. Okay, God who gives generously. So it's actually not just something God will do, but it's something that's essentially part of God's character. It's who God is that he gives generously. We often uh, sing the song here at church, uh, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. Okay, we know that song. Um, and so the nature of God is that when we pray for wisdom, He's ready to give. He's ready to give generously and to do so without reproach, as it says there as well. Um, God gives generously without reproach. And, and I think that this is the opposite of how we often expect God to respond to us when we pray. Uh, maybe it's just me, but I, I tend to kind of, in a small part of me, expect God to be a little bit disappointed, a little bit dis- disapproving perhaps, uh, in some way maybe withholding goodness from from me. Uh, maybe that's that's like you as well. Um, and given our sinfulness, that's not really an unfair expectation. Like we don't deserve in, in, a, in a way to, to be treated much better than that. Um, but we've been given grace. 
We've been given grace, and grace means that we have a new identity. We are now sons and daughters of God, and we're loved by Him. I believe that, that God is as pleased with us as He is with Christ. I'll say that again. God is as pleased with us as He is with Christ. And I'm saying that not because of anything we've done, but because we have been given the righteousness of Christ. That's part of the great exchange that happened on the cross, is that God took our unrighteousness and he, gave, and he put it on Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' right standing, his status before God became our inheritance. And so when God looks at us, he sees us as fully his sons and daughters. And so of course he's going to give generously to us when we ask. Of course he is. He's not, he's not wanting to hold back or disapprove. He's ready and eager to give and to help us in our times of, of trial. We are his beloved children. As the song goes, it, it's who we are. It's who we are. So let us come before God. Let's come boldly in prayer when we're in our times of suffering and brokenness. Let's pray in faith, as the verse encourages us to do so, knowing who God is and knowing who we are. And he, we will find that he, he gives generously and he's there to give us wisdom and to help us in our times of, of trial. As we continue through the passage and look at verses 9 to 11, we see, we'll see that faith gives us a right perspective on our situations. It's the next point there. Faith gives us a right perspective on our situations. Look at verses 9 to 11 with me. James says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fades and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In these verses, we see the upside-down kingdom of God. We see the lowly man contrasted with a rich person. And, and we're told that the lowly person should somehow boast in their exaltation, while the rich person should boast in their humiliation. Now, telling a poor person to, to boast because actually they're in a great position again feels insensitive and a bit like saying, consider it joy when you're going through these hectic things. Okay, But again, um, James is making a very serious point. It's not just a trite uh, kind of encouraging saying. Um, and the answer to understanding how this can really be is again found in the substance of what faith is. Faith sees a different story. Faith sees a bigger picture. It sees the eternal perspective. And so the person who is poor or going through adversity but is in Christ is actually someone who has been raised with Christ and is seated with Christ at the right hand of God, as Ephesians tells us, who has been lavished with every spiritual blessing in Christ, who enjoys the full rights of sons and daughters of God. And in terms of the context of this passage, when we're suffering in various ways, we also have the exalted position of knowing that God is at work in those, in those trials, making us better, making us mature and complete. And that is a great position to be in. And so in, in those ways, we can actually boast in our exaltation when we find ourselves in, in, in difficult or poor positions in life. On the other hand, the rich person in this life, or the person who is enjoying success and prosperity in this life, or enjoys particular kinds of privileges in this life, uh, that person should recognize how temporary it all is. Uh, that person should realize their actual spiritual poverty 
their desperate need for Jesus. Because like a flower in the field, as the verse shows, uh, they, they, they will also enjoy their moment in the sun for, for just an instant compared to eternity. So really, in a sense, their, their great position is a, is a humble position because, because of how temporary it all is. Now, whilst I think this, this little section, I think it does apply directly to rich people and poor people, definitely does primarily, I actually think that, that it has application for other dimensions of what we might call poverty and privilege. Okay, broadly speaking, poverty and privilege. And I suspect that nearly all of us would be able to identify with some dimensions of poverty or, or difficulty in life and also with some dimensions of privilege. So, questions that we can ask ourselves, are we, or are you materially poor or facing financial stresses at the moment? Are there health issues or, or areas or aspects of your body that grieve you? Are you socially excluded in any ways? Are you lonely? Are you going through a time of particular suffering in some way? Are you battling with sin and deeply frustrated by it? In some ways, these lowly positions are positions which we should exalt in our position in Christ, we need to be reminded and uplifted that we're actually someone in Christ and, the, and we need to be reminded of all the grace that has been lavished on us. On the other hand, are you rich? And I do a lot of analysis of uh, data sets in South Africa and so I know where we are on the spectrum and many of us are, are rich, certainly. Um, do you have advantageous social connections? Do you have a job? Are there areas in your life where you enjoy success and recognition? Do you benefit from various forms of social privilege? And we've had a lechotlan privilege, so we unpacked in more detail the kinds of privileges that, that we, many of us can tick. Things like white privilege, socioeconomic status, uh, educational privilege, gender-based privilege. There are all ways in which some of us enjoy the sort of high, the so-called high positions in life when this life. And I think what James is saying to us is don't get too comfortable in those positions. These high positions uh, are not going to last. Don't put hope in your education or your wealth or your social standing because those things are, are in a way not your true position. In a way, we have spiritual poverty in our desperate need for Jesus. Those things are not going to withstand the fiery furnace of the trials of life. They're not going to count for authentic faith, which is what we need for eternity. All right, so faith gives us a right perspective on our situations. When we see the bigger picture, the eternal picture, we actually get a right perspective of the different situations we're in in life. Faith uplifts us in the broken times, but it humbles us in terms of our worldly prosperity. Faith turns wealth and poverty upside down. And so I hope you can start to see why it is James can actually legitimately say, consider it joy when you're going through these trials of different kinds. Okay. The final verse in our passage that we're going to look at, verse 12, uh, it draws the whole section together and it reminds us of the destination for this journey, where, where we're all headed, why we're going through these trials. And it reminds us that there is a reward for those whose faith stands firm to the end. There is a reward for those whose faith stands firm to the end. Let's read verse 12 together to see that. Verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Our passage today started off explaining how the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And here we see how uh, those who remain steadfast will receive a crown of life. All right, we've also seen already how God is present with us in our sufferings to give us wisdom and to help us. But this verse shows us how there's also a future reward as a motivator in store for us. Now, again, for me, and maybe it is the same for you, death feels a long way off. All right, It feels like something of an unreality. Uh, maybe it's because none of us have experienced it ever, so it doesn't, it doesn't really feel like a reality. Um, I find myself hoping and dreaming for things in this life to become better. That's, if I'm honest, when, when my thoughts go and, and what it is that I'm kind of hoping for, it's generally things in this life more than it is things in the ne- next life. And, uh, but in fact, I think looking forward to, to eternal uh, promises is actually, is actually and always has been a, a part of authentic faith. Um, Hebrews chapter 11 is the famous hall of faith where a whole lot of Old Testament characters are listed and their actions are described and showing how what they accomplished was done through faith, right? The hall of faith. But let's have a look at a few verses from Hebrews 11 to see where their hope was. Where was their hope? What was motivating them? Let's read uh, Hebrews 11 verse 13 to 16 together. We read that, that these people, these men and women of faith, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So we see that these people were looking forward to a future reward, a reward that they did not necessarily get in their, in their lifetime. So faith has always looked forward. It's always seen the bigger picture. It's always been about an eternal perspective in which our present sufferings are but a momentary affliction. But more so, having look, looking forward to a future reward and that being a motivator for, for going through the things we have to go through now, that was also what motivated Jesus. All right? You might remember a few verses from Hebrews that we looked at in a, in a sermon a few Sundays ago um, from Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. We read this a few Sundays ago and spent time on this, and we'll see that Jesus was also motivated by the future reward. Um, we read that, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and those witnesses are all the hall of faith that, we, that I mentioned now, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There was no other way for Jesus to accomplish what he had to accomplish other than going to the cross. That was a certainty for him. Suffering was a certainty for his race. But also his final destination was also a certainty. 
he would be raised to life and seated at the right hand of the Father. And this was the joy that was set before him. The joy of the honor and the glory bestowed upon him by God. Not in this present phase of life, but in eternal glory. And we're told here to look to Jesus as our example as we run our race. So in the same way, we should look forward to the crown of life that is in store for those whose faith lasts. Okay, one more point to make before we wrap up. Also from verse 12. Let's read verse 12 again together. There we go. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who have faith. Oh wait, I read it wrong. It doesn't say to those who have faith. It says to those who love him. Now, I think that in the context of the passage, I would have almost expected it to be to kind of reinforce this idea that those whose faith lasts, those who have faith, they're going to be the ones who stand firm at the end and get the crown of life. But he talks here about loving God. Um, and I don't think he's saying that, I don't think he's introducing a new, a new concept. He's not saying you need to have faith and love God, although in a sense we do need to have faith and love God. But I think there's something in this about the nature of authentic faith, that the nature of true faith involves loving God. It doesn't just involve believing that he's real or believing in him. Um, later on in James, he'll say that even the demons uh, believe, even the demons believe, all right, but, but that kind of belief is not a saving faith. That's not authentic faith. They don't love God or take delight in his promises or, or certainly not delight in the future reality that lies in store. No, the kind of faith we need loves God. It enjoys God. It worships him and it delights in his promises. Um, I'm talking here about the difference between, say, wanting a football team to win because you've placed a bet on them and stand to gain some money versus wanting a football team to win because you're a diehard fan, because you love that team, because you've got posters up all over your room of the players and you admire the philosophy of the club, you love the playing style of, of the team and you've been, you've been idolizing that team since you were young. All right? that's, that's the kind of, of, of love that we're talking about here. You can, you, can, you can want to sort of be a Christian just to kind of, Make sure you're okay for if you die, that you've taken out a kind of insurance policy. But that's not really faith. If, if your faith is authentic, it's going to involve loving God, delighting in Him, um, really enjoying Him. And this is why we worship God expressively, while we sing songs and we use different kinds of artistic expression to express uh, all that God's done for us, how we feel about God. Now, of course, of course, it goes beyond just expressing things emotionally. Of course, we need to, loving God really means obedience in every area of our life. But certainly there's this kind of delight, this enjoyment of God, which is key to, to, to authentic faith. Now, Jesus says that whoever believes in me will never thirst again. So believing in Jesus is about having our thirst quenched. It's about being satisfied in him, um, enjoying him, loving him. Uh, and, and this is the only kind of faith that will last. The only kind of faith that will ultimately lead to the crown of life on that day is if we've got that kind of faith which involves loving and delighting in God. So let's just quickly recap what we've seen today. So we've been looking at authentic faith and the grind. 
We've seen how God uses trials to prove and improve our faith. God gives us wisdom and helps us in the midst of our suffering. We've also seen that faith gives us a right perspective on our situation, whether it is a situation of, of suffering in which, we, in which faith uplifts us and gives us hope, or whether things are going well now, in which case faith humbles us and reminds us of, of, of our spiritual need. Um, we've also seen that there is a reward for those whose faith stands firm to the end. And we've seen that this kind of authentic faith is a faith that goes beyond just believing, but it actually loves and delights in God. So how are we going to respond uh, to, to this message? Of course, I hope that through, through dwelling on these truths, our lives will be affected, that the things we're going through, we'll be able to find hope in the midst of it. We will find encouragement as we leave today, as we go into the week and the year that lies ahead with all the challenges that will come. But for today, I'd like us to respond in an attitude of prayer. I want us to respond. For some of us, actually praying it might be a, a sort of something we haven't done much of recently. Even that might be a bit of a step of faith. Sometimes when things get rough, we withdraw from God and we don't find ourselves praying. So even just engaging God in prayer and just saying how you're feeling can be a step forward. So let's pray individually as we're sitting there, uh, as we sing the closing song together. Uh, but also afterwards, uh, please come come and ask someone to pray with you if you'd like that. I'll be up front. On Air and Confidence will be available as well up front. But anyone else that, that you know and trust would, I'm sure, be happy to pray with you. Um, let's come to God as we pray and let's lay down the specific trials, the stuff we're going through right now, the stuff that's keeping us awake at night. Let's express honestly how we're feeling and let's invite him into those broken places. Let's ask God as we pray for a new perspective on our situations. Um, even if we're not going to understand a neat story of why, why things are happening in our lives, um, let's ask that he'll help us understand and see how he's at work to, to make us better, to improve us and to mature us. Let's also ask that God would open the eyes of our heart to get, a spirit, to get an eternal perspective, that we'll actually grasp how temporary things are now and the truth of what lies ahead and the reward that is in store. Um, as we trust in him. So let's ask God also to give us wisdom and to help us in our time of need, knowing that he's ready to give generously, um, that he's not withholding his goodness from us. He is our good, good father who gives generously to all of us without reproach. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can come before you. And we thank you as we do that we enjoy an incredibly privileged position of being your sons and daughters. Thank you for the immense grace that you have lavished on us, Lord, that we did nothing to deserve it, but that we enjoy uh, forgiveness, we enjoy right standing with you, we enjoy the favor of, of being looked at as you look at Christ. Thank you that we can pray that you hear our prayers. Thank you that you're with us today in the midst of what we're going through, even though it may not always feel like that to us, Lord. Help us to have faith to believe it. Help us, Lord, to respond in faith. Would you rise faith up in us, Lord? It, we need a miracle, Father. We, we can't make it happen in our own hearts. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be planting truths deep in us, Lord, that by your grace you'd help us to believe and stand firm. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.